0: Good morning. Today's scripture comes to us from the book of Jeremiah, 22, verses 1 through 5, 13 through 17. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judea and announce this word there. You are to say, hear the word of the Lord, king of Judea, you who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers and your people who enter these gates. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victims of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place, for if you conscientiously carry out his word, then kings sitting on David's throne will enter through the gates of this palace riding on chariots and horses, they, their officers, and their people. But if you do not obey these words, then I swear by myself this is the Lord's declaration that this house will become a ruin. Woe for the ones, woe for the one who builds this palace through unrighteousness, his upstairs room through injustice, who makes his neighbor serve without pay and will not give him his wages, who says I will build myself a massive palace with spacious upstairs rooms, he will cut windows in it and it will be paneled with cedar and painted bright red. Are you a king because you excel in cedar? Didn't your father eat and drink and administer justice and righteousness? Then it went well with him. He took up the case of the poor and needy. Then it went well. Is this not what it means to know me? This is the Lord's declaration, but you have eyes and a heart for nothing. Accept your own dishonest prophet, shedding innocent blood and committing extortion and oppression. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Albert. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, like we could say good morning, that just just helps us get going. We lost an hour of sleep, so we're all feeling a little groggy, so it's good to... uh, to wake ourselves up and be responsive here. We are in a series in this season of Lent, we're calling it Questions That God Asks Us. Now, we've, we've looked at three questions. Um, we've, we looked at a question from the prophet Jeremiah earlier, uh, who can understand the heart. We've looked at a question from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 where God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? And then last week, Pastor Eric Chappelle led us in a message um, where God asks Hagar, where are you going? Where do you come from and where are you going? So we're in our fourth message in the series. We're going to look at three more during Lent. Then on Good Friday and Easter, we're going to be looking at two of the questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. Now, if, if you're a Christian... There's something maybe that you've said, or at least you may have thought this, and if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, maybe a Christian has said this or shared this with you, and that is something like this. If you're looking for answers, then you should look in the Bible, because the Bible has the answers that we're all looking for. And I think that's true, and it's something uh, that's helpful, but maybe it's... A little oversimplistic because we open up the Bible, we see it has stories, it has letters, it has poetry and songs and prophecy, and we're like, well, where's the question? It's not written in a question and answer format. Maybe it's as helpful, or maybe it's even more helpful to say, if we're looking for the right questions, then the Bible has the right questions that we should all be asking. What we encounter in Scripture is that when God draws near to someone with the intent of showing them more about who they are and with the intent of showing them more about who He is, especially in a key moment where He is looking to transform them and change them, instead of coming at people with an answer, often God comes with a question. We see that with Adam and Eve, with Cain, with Abraham, with Hagar with Moses, with Jonah, with Job, and Elijah, all throughout the Bible, and even more when we come to the Gospels, when we see how Jesus interacts with people. See, some of the most powerful statements that Jesus made are actually questions. The questions that God asks us are meant to probe us. They're they're meant to open up our hearts and cause us to reflect on who we are and then on who He is, and what our response should be to those things. Today, we're looking at a question that God asked through the prophet Jeremiah. If you missed the question, it's there in verse 16 of chapter 22. There, the question is this. God asked through the prophet Jeremiah, is not this what it means to know me? You could translate it, is this not the knowledge of me. And when we're looking at this question, it doesn't get any more important or central in the Bible than this. This gets to the very heart and the very center of things. In a sense, it's asking us about the Bible's most important message, the goal of the entire Bible, that humanity would come to know God. That those of us who feel estranged from God, those of us who are alienated from God, all of us might come to know him. The Hebrew there is the word yada, And that word, it doesn't entail just the knowing of information or knowing true things about God. To know God, to yada God, is to be in relationship with him, to have a connection with God, to intimately know him. So you could translate it like this. Or paraphrase it like this, isn't this what it means to be in true relationship with me? So in this question, God is asking us to examine whether or not we know him. Do I really know God? Am I in a true relationship with the God of the Bible? Or am I in a relationship with a God of my own invention, a God of my own making? This is a question that will help us answer this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this question can help you answer something like this. What does it look like to know the God of the Bible? What does it look like to be in a relationship with Him? A few Sundays ago, when Pastor Eric Chappelle was leading us in our liturgy, he was talking about how almsgiving, or acts of compassion on the poor are a part of the historic observance of the Lenten season. And we've been sharing different opportunities that we have as a church and opportunities that we're exploring, how we can be good neighbors to those in need in our community. And our compassion team is doing a great job with that. But when he said that, it hit me that our series for Lent has been focused on questions that cause us to look inward, questions about our own personal growth and change, and that's important. And we really need seasons for us and for our soul to be looking at where we stand with God. Where are we? But we also need questions that force us to examine our outward posture to the world. How am I doing in relationship to other people, to my neighbors? And so I was drawn to this question in Jeremiah. There, what we've already heard, God is asking us a question through his prophet. Is this not what it means to know me. What is this? If you look then again at this passage, verses 15 and 16, this is this. It's referring to verses 15 and 16 where Jeremiah, again speaking for God, says, didn't your father, he's talking about King Josiah, didn't he administer justice and righteousness? He took up the cause of the poor and needy, then it went well. Is this, this is, taking up the cause of the poor and needy, administering justice and righteousness. Is not this what it means to know me? It's a rhetorical question. It's meant to cause us to ask, is it? Is taking up the cause of the poor and needy what it means to know God, to be in relationship with Him? That's the question. I want to look at it in three parts using three three more questions. The first question we'll look at is who, who is this question for? How should it be answered? And thirdly, how should it change us? So who is this question for? We are jumping right into the prophet Jeremiah. It's a, it's a long book. We're coming right into the middle, chapter 22. What are we reading? We're reading the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22. And when we come to this chapter 22, it's actually a collection of messages that the prophet Jeremiah gave over a number of years to the kings and the people of Judah after King Josiah. So there were at least three kings that he was speaking to. Uh, the son of Josiah, Shalom, the grandson of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and the great-great-grandson of Josiah, Jehoiachin. And all these messages, these things that that Jeremiah addressed with these kings and with the people of Judah under their reign, they're all collected here in one chapter, in chapter 22 of Jeremiah. Why? Why are they all bundled together here? It's because they share a common theme. And that theme is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me again. It's justice and righteousness. In verse 3 of our text, it says, This is what the Lord says, administer justice and righteousness. That's a major theme, not only in this chapter, but a major theme throughout the Bible. Those two words, justice and righteousness, they appear together all throughout the Scriptures. When two words appear together to express one idea, there's a fancy term for it. It's called hendiadys. It's one idea that is express, expressed in two words. So in English, we say law and order or health and safety. We say those two things together, and they communicate one big idea. Together, justice and righteousness. In English, the best equivalent that we have would be the term social justice. Verse 3 goes on to describe what justice and righteousness looks like in action. Jeremiah says it's about rescuing the oppressed in society, not exploiting or brutalizing the immigrants, resident aliens, refugees, or the fatherless, or the widow. It's about protecting and guarding innocent life. So from verse 2, we see that the whole chapter and this whole question is this not what it means to know me, was directed to a very specific audience. The theme, justice and righteousness. The audience is there in verse 2. It says there in verse 2, You are to say, Jeremiah, say this, hear the word of the Lord, King of Judah, that's a part of the audience, and you who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers, and your people who enter these gates. There was a very specific group of people that Jeremiah wanted to wrestle with this question. This theme of social justice. And as we learn a little bit about who they were, we can gain insight on who this question is for in our day. So it says, hear the word of the Lord, you who sit on the throne, your officers, your people who enter the gates. These gates, what are these gates? They would be the gates that link the palace and the temple. In Jerusalem. So they'd be used by the king, they'd be used by the king's entourage, those who were close to him in positions of power, and also by many of the people who were in places of influence. So it's not just the king that this was directed to, but all those at the gates. People of power, people of resources, and people of influence. These were the the kind of people at that time in Judah, in Jerusalem, who enjoyed the comforts of life. They had access to the privileges and the opportunities of wealth. Later on in Jeremiah, in this, in this chapter, in 13 through 19, we learn more about how the king and how those who had power and wealth, how they used this power, how they used their influence and their resources. Jeremiah starts pronouncing woes. And as he pronounces his woes, we get a little bit of a picture as to how this audience, how these people were living. It says in verse 13, you can look there with me, woe to him who builds his palace through unrighteousness and upstairs rooms through justice. Same theme, justice and righteousness. Verse 14, woe to him who says, I will build myself a massive palace. It'll have two stories upstairs with windows and cedar paneling, cedar Back in this time was the most expensive wood. It was used for decoration. And those who used bright red vermilion paint. Cedar was the most expensive wood. This was the most expensive paint. It was bright. It was showy. It was gaudy. It was meant to say, I have arrived. I am a person of wealth and means. So these were people who Jeremiah was speaking to who lived in affluence, in luxury, and in comfort. And in so doing, they ignored and they exploited the poor and the needy in their community and their city. And they were using what they had to expand their own world, to make it bigger and more spacious, all the while turning a blind eye to the needs of the poor. So who needed to hear that question. It was those who enjoyed comfort, who have resources, and are in positions of power. And it's the same group of people that need to hear that question today. Who needs to hear this question today? It's those who enjoy comfort, who are in positions of power, and who have resources. Those who can be so easily caught up in a culture of affluence and consumption. Isn't that most of us here today? Most of us who are living in suburban Orange County? Just to give us some global or some um, historical perspective on this, some perspective even from our own state, One-fifth of Californians live in poverty. That surprised me. In California, we house 22, or we have, rather I should say, 22% of the nation's homeless population. Globally, 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day, and close to 600, 700 million people live in extreme poverty, $1.90 per day. That's just to provide just a little bit of perspective because when it comes to social justice, when it comes to helping the oppressed, the poor, the the widow, and the orphan, one of the great temptations that we all face, that I face, in all of our busyness, we're very busy. We all have very good things to do. We have all very good things to enjoy. One of our temptations then is to think that this question is mainly for somebody else and not for us. So we tend to avoid it. We tend to dodge it. We say, I'm not one of the most wealthy people. I'm not that comfortable. I'm not rich. I don't have enough resources. I just don't have enough spare time. I'm not resource rich. I'm resource poor. Or that this question is for the government, this is for other people, who that is their thing, to help the poor and oppressed. That's their burden, that's their passion. My thing is something else. I'm not even powerful enough to do anything. What difference can I make? Those are all questions, those are all reactions and temptations that I have in my own heart when I'm confronted with a passage like this. But let me just suggest, let me just challenge myself and all of us here that this question is for us. This question's for us. If it is for us, in particular as middle-class people in Orange County who enjoy access to resources, to comfort, and to some degree of power, then how should it be answered? It's a rhetorical question, but the text leaves no doubt as to the basic reply, which is, yes, this is what it means to know God. But the text calls for more than just a theoretical answer to say yes and to move on. It's calling us to answer this, to ask, how do we answer this question with our lives in practice? And before we answer it too quickly and say, let's do something, let's be activists, let's go out there and change something. For my my Christian friends here, in our comfort, we have to let a text like this shake us a little bit. Disturb us. Make us uncomfortable before we're so quick to act and say, well, what do we do? I want to share something that made me uncomfortable this week. It's a longer quote. My monitor is not working, but I think it will be displaying on your monitors. It's from one of the theologians I most respect. His name's Christopher Wright. He wrote in his commentary on this text, writing about the book of Jeremiah, he said this, For in the midst of all our spiritualizing, pious, devotional, even mystical verbosity of what knowing God is all about, here is a stark four-word question in Hebrew that stands like a lighthouse on a rock in the middle of a tossing sea of words. We come wondering how to steer a course toward truly knowing God, and here we find a biblical, prophetic, inspired, luminous definition of what knowing God is. Its simplicity and clarity defies all obfuscation, doing righteousness and justice Defending the poor and needy, that is to know God. Where does this leave our limp evangelical pietism or our suspicion of social engagement or the rationalizations by which we excuse ourselves from the ideological and practical battlefields of economics and politics? If we wish to be among those who know God, then we had better share Josiah's commitment to social justice and action for the poor and needy. That's a lot. And that's very challenging and hard-hitting. But I would say, wouldn't you say that's in the spirit of the prophet Jeremiah? I was reading this week, and one pastor says that within the heart of every Christian, there lies, maybe sleeping, a heart for the poor and the needy. It needs to be awakened in order to come to life. That's the prophet's job. A prophet's job is to awaken us, to stir us, and if you struggle with this question, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, if it stirs all of us a little bit, then that's a good sign. That means something might be awakening within us. God might have our attention. But besides stirring us up and awakening us to answer this question, I think we need to ask ourselves a couple follow-up questions, both of which are embedded in this question. If knowing God leads to taking up the cause of the poor and needy, then we need to ask ourselves, do I really know God? And do I really know the poor and the needy? Let's look at those two questions. Do I really know God? This question forces us to ask that because this is a central aspect of God's character. It's not just a side issue. It's not just one of many issues and things that God cares about, taking up the cause of the poor and needy. Justice and righteousness are central to the heart of God. We read this already earlier in our service, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's our call to confession. On page three in the bulletin, I want to read it again. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. This is God's delight. It's what He loves to do. My wife, Amelia, she loves the Lakers, the Los Angeles Lakers. I knew that uh, from the very first time that I met her. That's what she's always loved, and she'll always love the Los Angeles Lakers. So in our home, the conversation or the debate whether Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan is the better player and greatest of all time, we don't get into that conversation. It just doesn't go well. so We just leave that issue uh, alone. If one day Amelia and I were talking and she was saying, let's, let's go to a Lakers game. That's what I want to do for my birthday or some special occasion. And I said, you like the Lakers? like basketball? She would step back and go, what? She would question everything about our relationship and our marriage. You don't know me if you don't know that I love the Lakers, that I love basketball. And I would be in big trouble if I said that. If you know someone in close relationship, then you know what they delight in. You know what they take joy in and pleasure in. That's what God's saying here in Jeremiah 9.23. He's saying, how can you know me if you don't know my joy? If you don't know, it brings me delight. I love seeing relationships made right. I love seeing the oppressed set free and seeing those who are forgotten cared for and served and protected. I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. This is just one example in the book of Jeremiah. We could point to many passages throughout the Bible. Just one more example. Um, there's a very well-known verse. We see it all over the place. I have a few pictures. I'm going to go down here so I can see when, when they pop up. John 3.16, we see it like at the Super Bowl, at the World Series, on an In-N-Out Cup. There's another one. There's a guy running. He wants to make sure that everybody sees John 3.16. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what sport event, sporting event that was, but... Uh, John 3.16, how many people know that? Just raise your hand, you might know it. Some of you uh, may not know it, that's okay, but that's a very important and central passage. People are willing to just make a sign and say, John 3.16, everybody needs to know this about God. But I think God might say to us, that's good, those signs are awesome, I love those signs. But where are the first John 3.16 signs? Does anybody have a 1 John 3.16 sign? I'm going to call on our students, our youth group, our middle and high school students. You guys were all at my house. Not not all of you. Maybe a few of you were missing uh, last Friday. Not this Friday, but last Friday. And Donald was teaching all of you. I confess, I was in the other room. I was spying and eavesdropping on what you were doing and what what Donald was saying. So I know you were studying 1 John 3 and 4, right? Yes, mainly 4. So I'm going to ask you guys, First John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to, you can look it up, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. 1 John 3.16 and following. To know God, to love Him, is to love those in need, in words and in deed. This is what brings God joy. Do we really know that God? Secondly, do we really know the poor and oppressed? Actual people who suffer in poverty and in social injustice. I think this text is saying if if we know God, if we become close to Him, we know His heart, we know what He loves, we know what He does and delights in, and we spend time in getting to know the poor, the needy, personally, immigrants, refugees, the orphans, the poor, the homeless of the world, something will happen when those two things come together. We struggle with this. The suburbs were created to insulate us and to isolate us from those who are suffering from injustice, those in poverty. And so we often have to take extra effort in order to build those kinds of relationships. For me in my own life, for my story, just sharing a little bit, there's no way in my own life that I would have an understanding of this text or an openness to social justice if I hadn't spent time getting to know actual people struggling and living in poverty. The very first ministry experience that I ever had, I was just out of high school. Um, I was beginning in in the context of a Bible study to understand, like, this is what it means for the Bible to apply to my life, for me to take action. And I came across an opportunity to spend the summer in inner city Jacksonville, Florida, that's where I grew up, to put on a free summer camp. And this summer camp was held for kids who were in the inner city who were living in projects. And I went into that experience with a lot of arrogance, with ideas on what would help the poor, what the problem was with poverty and how to solve it. A lot of that had to do with just work hard. Take advantage of your opportunities and everything will be fixed. As I got to spend that summer and I spent another summer just playing with these kids, taking them on field trips, playing basketball with them, teaching them swimming lessons. I got to know them. I was taking some of them to the movies, and my heart began to just completely change. Because as I got to know their situation, I realized it wasn't that simple. For these boys, the boys that I was hanging out with especially, I realized they didn't have fathers. Their role models were people who, for the most part, were struggling with their own issues. Many were spending time in prison. Many did not finish high school. And so as I got to spend time in their world and in their shoes, and I got to know their names, Michael and Sedale and Keith, I realized there's a lot of complexity here. I realized there is such a thing as systemic injustice and cycles of poverty. That completely changed the way that I read and receive texts like this forever because the poor injustice was not just a theory or a concept i have people's faces and stories in my mind when i come to texts like this and we all need that i need more of that in my life you see what jeremiah does here is he's vividly painting two pictures for us so we look at both of these pictures side by side on the one hand he paints a picture of the not poor those who have resources he says They're living in a palace, and when they have free time, what they're thinking about is how can I add an addition to my palace? It needs an extra room. It needs to be massive and spacious, and I want to add some windows to my palace. I want it to have cedar, only the very finest for me, and when I'm going shopping for paint colors, I'm picking red, vermilion, the most expensive paint out there. That's one picture. And then he paints another picture for us. He says, there are people who are being robbed, exploited, brutalized. Their blood is being shed. No one's looking at them, and they're forgotten. We Look at those two pictures side by side, and that overwhelms us. And Jeremiah wants us to see the disparity between those two pictures. The question is for us. It's uncomfortable and it's hard, but it's for us. The answer is we need to look at God in His heart. Do I really know Him, what He loves and what He delights in? Do I really know the poor, those who suffer from injustice? And lastly, the third question I want us to look at is how can this all change us? If it's for us, if this is the answer. How does this change us? When we are close to God and true relationship with Him, and we are awakened to the plight of the poor and the oppressed in a personal way, we will move toward working for justice and have a generous heart toward those in need. We will take up, Jeremiah says, the, the cause and the case of the poor and needy in our communities. But how does this happen? This is one topic as a pastor, as a teacher of the Christian faith, that I don't have to do a lot of arguing to say this, this is why this matters. Regardless of your belief system or your faith background, most people agree that poverty and injustice is a problem. We should all do something about it. Yet, to see change, to see progress is so difficult because the answer is not just at an intellectual level to say, yes, I agree with that, but the, the answer lies at the motivational level. That's what needs to be changed. Look at verse 17 with me here in our text, the very last section. There Jeremiah says, you have an eyes and a heart for nothing except your own dishonest prophet, shedding innocent blood and committing extortion and oppression. Jeremiah says the issue at root is the problem of the eyes and the heart. Another way of saying, where do you you give your best energy? What are you motivated to do and to act on? at the motivational level. Jehiakim, Josiah's great-grandson, only had eyes and heart for things that would profit him. And the issue is what he saw and what he felt, his eyes and his heart, when he looked at the poor. He saw himself above them. He was distanced from them. And the question for us is when we look at the poor, what do we see? Who do we see? We are changed when we look at the poor, and we see Jesus, and we see ourselves. That changes us at the motivational level. How do we see this in Jeremiah? If you have your Bibles, you can flip the page to Jeremiah 23. He continues on with this theme of justice and righteousness. This is how he wraps it up, and this is what he says is the ultimate solution to social injustice. Chapter 23, 5, and 6, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. Jeremiah is saying the only hope for lasting justice and righteousness is this coming king. He will bring salvation. He will bring security to everyone, including the poor. He'll give justice to the poor and oppressed, and he will give his righteousness to a people who are unrighteous, even those who have neglected the poor and the oppressed. And this will create a new city. This will create a new community. Where everyone dwells securely, a community of righteousness and justice. Who is Jeremiah talking about? Who is this king to come? As we see the story unfold, we see that this king is Jesus. He is this king. He is a king, though though he was rich, he was born into a poor family. Though he was rich eternally, Existing in the riches of his relationship and the glory of his eternal communion with God, Jesus became poor. He was born into the poorest of families in a feeding trough. He grew up poor. In his adult life, he was homeless. At the end of his life, he had absolutely nothing, not even the clothes he wore. This poor king, he is our righteousness. We already read it earlier in our service. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Pastor Eric, Eric C. read this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. A Christian says, My only hope, my only hope in life is a crucified poor man. When we see the poor, we see Jesus. In Matthew 25, There's a parable Jesus tells. It's a story about the final judgment. And there, Jesus will ask people, how did they treat the poor? And those who served the hungry, those who fed and clothed the naked, those who visited those who were in prison, Jesus said, those things you did, you did those to me. And the response there in that story is, when did we do that? When, I didn't see you. How did I do that for you? And the answer in the parable is that, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked, Jesus? Wasn't it at the cross? Wasn't it throughout his life and at the cross? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. When we see the poor... We're reminded of Jesus in the gospel. And when we see the poor and the, the oppressed, we also see ourselves. We don't look down on the poor. We don't serve the poor out of a guilt complex. I'll, I'll do this to fix myself. We don't serve the poor out of a God complex. I'll do this to fix them. Both come from seeing ourselves as above the poor. Instead, when we see the poor, we, we see ourselves. We identify with the poor. Because in the gospel, we know that Jesus had to become poor for us to be saved. We're cured then of our middle-class spirit, and we become poor in spirit. A middle-class spirit says, I can earn God's favor. Just tell me what to do, and I will do it. I have the resources. I have the ability. I will earn my own righteousness. A poor spirit says, I have nothing, no righteousness of my own. I am spiritually bankrupt. This heart of spiritual poverty gives us a heart for the material poor. When we know that Jesus in all his riches has become the Lord, our righteousness. At the the motivational level, we're changed when we see ourselves in the poor and when we see Jesus in the poor. Just a few practical thoughts and I'll close. There are a number of ways us as a church, our community, is seeking to be involved in serving the poor and the needy and working for justice in our community. And here, this can be somewhat frustrating that God, he leaves us with a question to wrestle with, not an answer. It would be easier if God said, give 10% of everything you have to worthy causes helping the poor. Give two hours a week. If God said, focus on the homeless, focus on the working poor, focus on relief or development, focus on Orange County, no, give your time to Ethiopia or Mumbai, all these opportunities are available to us. How do we choose? I think it's important for us to make sure we're wrestling with this as a community, that individually we are not asked. To bear this burden by ourselves, but as a community, as we sense the leading of the Holy Spirit, as we keep our eyes and our hearts open to the poor in our community, in our neighborhoods, as we enter into relationship with them through the opportunities that were given through our compassion ministry. Family promise, spend time getting to know a family on the brink of homelessness. Heart Park, just eat lunch with a homeless person, with a sheepfold. Spend time with a woman and her children who are trying to get back up on their feet and who are in need of encouragement. So can I encourage you, but can I encourage us as a church community? Let's press on. Let's not lose heart. Let's follow after God's delight. And together, let's remember to know God That as we know God better, we know the God who became poor, and to know the poor. And so, in knowing the poor, to have our hearts transformed into hearts of service and love for those in need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. It does shake us. It does make us feel uncomfortable. It raises all sorts of of questions in our own hearts. What should we do? How should we do it? But Lord, I pray before we think about ourselves, before we think about what we can and cannot do, I pray that this text would lead us to look to you, to know that you are a God who delights, whose whose joy is found in seeing those who are needy lifted up, served empowered, to seeing the oppressed set free. Give us that heart, Jesus, as we remember that you became poor so that we would have all the riches of your grace and righteousness forever. May that change us deeply from the heart at the motivational level and give us wisdom in our busy lives, and our full lives, when we feel like we just don't have anything left to give. I pray you would help us as a community to help each other live this out for your glory and for your joy. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.